the energy that comes from the sun is something we rarely think about because it's something we take for granted. Our body clocks are tuned to it and we have certain practices around it. And I think in our culture, we very easily fall into thinking about the sun as something like, oh, don't get burnt and it's good because you get vitamin D, right? Whereas actually the whole scope of what the sun does to us and the force that it is, is so much more. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle in 2000s podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pukowski. Everyone has been asking me lately about my beliefs or my thoughts, opinions, and protocols ultimately around saunas and ice tubs. So I thought I would start today's podcast with that. So transparently, I have been in the sauna and in the ice bath consecutively for the last 12 days, and I'll be going again tonight. People ask, well, should I do it in the morning? Should I do it in the evening? There's a lot of different opinions on this. So that's why I was like, I'm going to put this to the test. I'm actually going to do it for 30 days in a row and see how it directly impacts my energy, see how it directly impacts my body composition, see how it directly impacts my sleep and all of the above. Um, so here's the feedback after the first 12 days. It never gets easier. This is what I'm finding. My ability to stay in it gets better. My ability to overcome or override my desire to get the hell out gets better. Um, but it never feels like it, it gets easier. So to just create that expectation for all the listeners out there, if you've never done a cold plunge or you want to continue to do a cold plunge, it doesn't get easier. And, and that's one of the things I love about it. If you've ever taken cold showers, it just never gets easier. You still have to fight every urge in your consciousness to go, get me the hell out of here. Uh, but the benefits are just so tremendous. So what I did was 10 days in a row, first thing in the morning, actually I would train and then I would go do the cold and the, and the sauna. And I know everyone's like, well, you shouldn't do that because you're muting your gains. I don't care. My objective is I want to feel great. I want to perform well. I want to see what it does to my recovery. Uh, did it mute my muscle gains? I don't think so. Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm trying to build massive amounts of muscle right now. I just want to maintain strength. And to be honest, my strength continues to go up. Uh, my body weight actually continues to go up, um, which is great. I'm eating less or, or not a lot. And I feel great. My, my recovery feels tremendous. And so my protocol is this. Uh, I started off the first four days doing about two minutes repeated twice. So I'll do two minutes. So first, actually, I'll say I'll do 30 minutes in the sauna, two minutes in the ice tub, 30 minutes in the sauna, two minutes in the ice tub, always finish on the ice. And it was easy. Like doing two minutes, I mean, it's never easy. Doing two minutes in the cold was uh, fine. Notice I prioritized or emphasized the sauna a little bit more. Uh, then I would progress to doing a little shorter sauna, 25 minutes and three minutes in the ice. And so now I should also acknowledge that if if you're aspiring to get in the ice tub, one of the questions is, well, what's the temperature? And so the temperature I'm getting into is between 33 and 35 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which is cold, um, very, very cold. Basically, it's ice, right? The dump bucket's ice in there. That's pretty cold. After a while, so if you get through the first minute, the second minute tends to get easier. The third minute tends to get even easier, in my opinion. The hack, if you want to do this, is manipulate whether your hands and your feet are inside of the water or not. If your hands and your feet are in the water, it's much colder. Getting blood to that extremities is much harder, tends to become a little bit painful. Uh, if you really want to dive in, keep the hands in, keep the feet in, and move them. So you want to, if you're creating some movement, you're breaking that thermal layer that your body creates and it makes it so much more uh, enjoyable, we'll say, so much more cold. Um, but if you take your hands out, 
then you can stay in much longer. And so what I often will do is I'll keep my hands in for the first one to two minutes, and then maybe I'll take my hands out if I want to stay in longer. Because personally, after I've become comfortable with the cold, I want to induce shiver. And so I think in the beginning, when you're just getting used to this to the sauna, inducing a shiver is not mentally easy. It's it's hard to get to that point. And the cool thing about it is you could stay in for much longer than three minutes. To be honest, three minutes is very easy. It's not unlikely or uncommon for me to do six to seven minutes, in which case, and if I know I'm only doing one, I'll tell you that the honest truth is if it's cold outside, the likelihood of me doing six and seven minutes becomes less and less because you're literally going to have a hard time warming up for the next hour or two. If it's hot outside, doing six or seven minutes will be very easy because as soon as you go outside, your body temperature warms up. My suggestion is you don't go into the sauna right after your final cold plunge. You want to allow your body to heat itself up naturally. That's what's going to induce that uh, thermogenic, thermogenic effect that the body's heating itself up uh, internally. Uh, I've seen a significant drop subjectively in infl- inflammation. Just in general, my body just looks tighter. I feel tighter. My digestion feels great. Um, in general, no complaints. My sleep has been fantastic. So uh, uh, after 12 days of my little 30-day experiment, it's been really, really enjoyable. Oh, I'll also say some of the days after the first uh, week or so, I started going at night. I would go really just before bed and I would do shorter duration cold, like 60 seconds, uh, followed by 20 to 25 minutes in the sauna, 60 seconds in the cold, 25 minutes in the sauna. Um, What I'm calling contrast therapies, going back and forth. And it really seems to, I just basically go till I feel like I can't go anymore and I'm fatigued. So I probably did four or five ice plunges and it literally induces uh, what I would say is like this neurological reset, it's putting me into this deep state of fatigue and I sleep like a champ. And that's something I've done probably for 15 years. I was doing cold, gosh, whenever Tim Ferriss wrote the four hour work, four hour work for our body, uh, I started doing ice tubs then. Because he was, uh, you know, the first person I'd ever heard talk about that. I'd, I'd seen um, cold saunas before, but never I'd seen cold plunges really, other than in professional sports. So, anyways, today's podcast. Uh, let's move on. So, if you got my feedback, my opinions on saunas and cold plunges. I'm a huge fan. I love it. I think everyone should do it. It just feels good uh, mentally. It feels like you're doing something really hard. You leave. You feel great. You're so energized, uh, ready to tackle the day. So today's podcast is a great one. Bjorn Eckerberg joins me today to talk about science, to talk about his enduring interest in a philosophy of science. He has a focus and interest on the limits of the scientific knowledge. His published work is in cosmology, and we'll talk a little bit about that, which ultimately uh, understanding the universe. Um, Dr. Eckerberg is the founder of a company called FlexBeam, which is the world's first targeted red light therapy device. Which I they you know transparently they gifted to me and it's been really really great in my uh, recovery endeavors. I'm a huge fan of light, as you guys know. Light is just uh, we are light beings, which sounds uh, like hyperbole or just you know some type of esoteric statement, but it's not. We're literally light beings, and uh, the more we can learn to subject our body to the right light spectrums at the right time, ultimately the sun being the most important one. If you can't do that, then you've got infrared, you've got UV. And then all these different waveforms and spectrums in the middle. We talk about that and so much more today in this podcast. This product was developed by some researchers from NASA. It is a near infrared light, clinically proven to relieve pain, uh, repair cells, boost energy, reduce inflammation, 
that are not the sponsor of the podcast, but Dr. Eckerberg is a guest in the show. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He did gift me a uh, device, which I love transparently. We a few, uh, a few key points from the podcast. We talk about the limitations of modern science within understanding the universe. Um, because it's all based on specific assumptions, as Dr. Eckerberg will so eloquently explain, um, how energetics of cosmology affect our modern lives, ultimately in the form of sunlight, which is why he took such an interest in photobiomodulation on a mechanistic level, um, how, why, and where to use red light effectively, and why more is definitely not better. Sponsors for today's podcast are friends at Bioptimizers have done it again with an amazing product called Kala Genius. For an exclusive offer just for listeners of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, head over to Newtopia, that's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A.com slash Muscle Genius. Do it now. Your brain and body will thank you and possibly your coach if you are one of the Muscle Intelligence community uh, clients. Again, that's Newtopia, N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A dot com slash Muscle Genius. You use the promo code Muscle10 during checkout to save 10%. What you're going to get is an incredible collagen product that can be used in your coffee and your protein shake that's also blended with five different superfoods, four different mushrooms, lion's mane, chaga, reishi, cordyceps. Ultimately, these are hyper-concentrated formats of 51 and 101 extracts of the mushrooms, so it's basically like eating 1.2 pounds of mushrooms in each dose because of the concentration. So again, Collagenius is the product. I highly suggest you check it out. I've got a bottle staring at me right out in front of me, and I just love it. it tastes good, and it makes me feel amazing. Ladies and gents, enjoy the podcast with Bjorn Eckerberg. I'd love to have you walk down that path of, of your areas of interest because I did some exploring on your website, watching your YouTube videos. You know, anyone who pursues physics and metaphysics and, you know, the evolution of the universe <laughs> has a lot of interesting uh, insights into reality. I- I'd love to have you just kind of go down the path of, um, you know, maybe talking to us about how that began. Because as you said, you did an undergrad in media and film, and mm-hmm. then you went down this, this serendipitous path of, of getting into uh, kind of pursuing science. I'd love to hear about it. I was fortunate enough to go travel to Canada, a country I didn't know anything about, to pursue higher studies. And I took one semester at a time. And it was mostly sort of young experience. I wanted to work with media and film and things like this. And I was allowed an opportunity to follow my interests. And they became more and more deep, I would say, and like into really history and philosophy and history of ideas. And eventually, when I got an offer to do a PhD program, which is a cross-disciplinary um, kind of ideas program. I was allowed to immerse myself in in things that I always found very interesting, but that there wasn't a specific program for. And somehow with that, I zeroed in on the production of knowledge and how science comes into being. And I was always very, very interested in questions around uh, physics and the limits of knowledge. In physics, there is a clear sense that uh, we have mapped out nature in a very definitive way, because that's what really physics is about. But when you start mapping that onto the universe, you run into all kinds of limitations. And so I was very interested in this nebulous borderline between what we certainly know for sure and the kind of projections we make toward, you know, the early universe and the vast universe and what do we really know. And the more I started digging into it and poking into the premise or the foundation for a lot of this thinking and what we take as the accepted knowledge, I started finding all kinds of sort of holes and shaky grounds. I started realizing that the current 
theory of cosmology, which is what we have grown up with, the Big Bang theory and a lot of uh, the, the associated parts of that theory, are in many ways based on good plausible conjecture and various kinds of suppositions, assumptions, and is not at all as clear cut as what we have been told. And so I found this quite fascinating and I wrote a book about it. So I got it, it took some years through academic publishing and was released in 2019. And then I wrote more on this in Scientific American. And I've been part of some uh, debating at an international philosophy festival on this topic. And it's actually generated a lot of interest because I have a perspective that is somewhat different from if you went a straight academic path and toward a professorship. I have somewhat of an independent position, so I don't have a stake in which theory is right or so on. So it allows me a little bit of space to be sort of critical of the field. Uh, without costing me my job. Yeah, it's all theory, right? As far as I've I've been able to, to uncover, it's like, well, the best we can come up with is it may have looked something like this. And that yeah. like is that is that more or less it? Yeah, I would say so if you dig down to it, like the layers of interpretations that are necessary in order to make these theories work, that is often underplayed. So uh, I make no claim to knowing whether the theory is right or wrong or which is the better theory or what fits the, the data better than the current theory. But uh, really uh, curious about the sort of the weak foundations when you go into the, the orders of the cosmos that at a certain point, science, which I have a lot of respect for, and it's like really fascinated by how certainly certain we can know certain things at the same time, when you really start pushing it to the extreme limits, like when you start pushing it out of our own galaxy and you start making projections about billions of galaxies, billions of light years away, science becomes indistinguishable from myth at some point, mm. right? And it's precisely this kind of uh, boundary zone that uh, was the focus point and still is of my sort of side that's research so into physics. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting, you know, uh, intellectual explorations that I've ever come across. Just thinking about, so obviously our ability to theorize about other galaxies is limited by our ability to think at some level. So you said like you were studying that or, or you were studying like the, the overlap of thought and then ultimately influenced by bias and then influenced by computational power. Like there's gotta be so many potential roadblocks that you're running into like, okay, so we're just gonna, the best guess that we've got up to this point is this. And then the next theory that comes to mind or the next robot that comes to mind for me is, is the theory that I'm projecting on the future even based on accurate information from the past? Because it could be basing off things that someone else has come up with as, as fact that may not be reality at all, right? These You have to go back and verify all these calculations and all these potential theories. Is that Are we kind of on the right path? Yeah. And so one of the complications that happens with this is a sort of self-reinforcement that starts mm -hmm. taking place because of this kind of science, which is extremely complex and it's extremely resource intensive. Mm -hmm. So it requires, you know, huge satellites and telescopes and hundreds and thousands of people working in teams and collaborative efforts. Right. It's not like a brilliant guy with the blackboard, the sort of the old image we have of Einstein as the as the sort of the philosopher scientist. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's interesting when you look into how science actually works, and that was kind of my focus, is like how is science actually sort of like how do scientists do their work and what is like how does this sort of produce certain knowledge? Is that there is this reinforcement at every step because the experiment is designed to try to confirm the initial theory that you set out to do and right. with the limitations of funding at this level there actually is a strong argument to be made for a kind of path dependency 
that means that you are already on a path to try to explore this one theory. So the ideal perspective in which you could just take a step back and look at whether there's a different approach to it that might make more sense, that doesn't actually work in reality because in order to do scientific work, you have to start with some scientific premise mm -hmm. that is already validated. So there's a continuous sort of revalidation of the same premise, even if the results come out and don't really match. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, I've been talking more at length about this and like more recently, and I'm, I'm pursuing a sort of a hobby book project on, on this to develop it further. But the ability for a science at that level of precision still to get kind of stuck, that is what I find interesting about cosmology. And I should say that this is not against science as such. It is something about when you try to take science to a limit, the limit of knowledge and beyond. Right. So I would make no such claims about something that is much more sort of our earthbound science in which we really can test out the parameters fully. Uh, when you're dealing with the universe, we are very, very tiny comparison to a very large, an unfathomably large structure. And our ability to even measure that structure is based on certain interpretations, right? We don't even know the scale other than through our theories of how the scale works. So already there, there's potential complications in how we, how we come at it. Right. So how do, how do we know that it's that vast? I mean, this isn't necessarily the direction we need to go on this podcast, but I'm, so I think it's, it's incredibly interesting. So how do we know that it's this infinite, never-ending, you know, universe? Or how do we, what are, like, what do we know, I guess, is maybe a more accurate question. I mean, the prevailing theory that's uh, sometimes called the standard model of cosmology, or that is really Big Bang Theory in more popular terms, is this idea that we are in an evolutionary universe that started 13.8 billion years ago. That's the rough estimation has developed into where we are today. And this is usually taken as a scientific fact. But if you look at how we have arrived at that model, uh, there's a couple of things that are interesting to note. I mean, first of all, we observed in the early to mid 20th century in 1920s and into 1930s, we observed very clearly some light phenomena in far out galaxies that suggested that the universe is expanding, right? And around the same time as we observed something that looks like expansion, right? Uh, and that's predicated on us understanding what this light phenomenon really means, right? That it's, it is an interpretation, it's the consensus interpretation and it's, it's become canonized as like, that's what it is. But even that is actually a little bit up for that there are uh, other views in science about what it really means. But let's say uh, we accept that there's expansion of the universe. Now, the Big Bang theory comes in with an evolutionary model of the universe. It has a, it's, a, it's a mathematical model of what's called general relativity, which is like our, the framework, the theoretical mathematical framework for the universe that Einstein developed. And there's a version of this that was developed in which time is linear. So, in a very simplified sense, you could say the argument that started developing in the 20th century was given that the universe seems to be expanding, what if we just wound that back backwards in time linearly all the way back to a t minus t equals zero? Then we have a model for that. We have a theoretical framework for that. So that's, that's great. So now you have a combination of a theoretical framework you can work within and a hypothesis that at some point the universe must have begun at a singular point. There is so it's quite a substantial leap to go from expansion of the universe to the conclusion that it all had to begin at one point in time, right? There are various ways that you could approach this from plausibility or other calculations of just like 
it's not so clear cut. But that is anyway the story we landed on because the framework is very, very useful for scientists, right? And there are certain indications and pieces of evidence that we have found. I, I don't know if we should go into those kinds of details here now, but that accumulated, there's not many of them, two or three observations that seem to map onto the Big Bang Theory. And what happened in the 1960s and the 1970s is cosmology actually became a science. Before this, it was like astronomy, right? Astronomy meets metaphysics. And then you got a scientific discipline and this became the framework. So the first, the first framework of cosmology was this Big Bang Theory and suddenly it was taught in schools and it was like the whole structure was set up. So within a decade or two, it just became the framework and it's accepted at the same level as evolution, as a theory. And that is quite interesting given the enormous difference in scale of how how well we know and how far we are away from it right so i'm particularly interested in this now because there's a new satellite or like a telescope that has been sent up last year called the james webb space telescope that's producing some new amazing imagery using infrared cameras institute in, interestingly and already there are clear signs that some of the images we're now we're able to see deeper into space or further out than before and scientists are busy at work trying to make sense of this because it doesn't quite, a lot of the things that are coming out are not quite matching the models you had. So there's a lot of frenetic activity now to try to sort of update and move the parameters around to make it fit, to contain, like to keep the same theory at the same time as there are uh, certain aspects of the Big Bang Theory are, are being challenged based on data alone and observations alone. So uh, it's a very interesting time to be sort of focus on this topic. There are signs of potential shifts in the discipline, but it is the Big Bang Theory is the only framework that's been developed at this sort of grand scale for experiments and theory. So it's not easy for someone with a different theory to come in and just say, hey, like here's, you know, here is the alternate theory that explains it. That will require decades of research and funding and all of that stuff. And in practice, I know this from speaking to so many astrophysicists uh, over the last couple of years, it's they all know that you don't get funding unless you go by the existing theory. So there again, there's a self-reinforcing element, which doesn't mean that it's all, I'm not trying to say it's a conspiracy or a hoax or anything. It's just that it, uh, there is a circular logic to the story when you start digging into it. So where does metaphysics tie into all that? Because yeah, I'm curious, you know, as you study the expansiveness of the universe and then and also on you know my understanding of metaphysics is you're looking at the smallest incremental parts how does that all tie in like i don't, I don't know if that's even a, a question that's answerable but i'm curious how because like your your book is is titled is titled Meta metaphysics i'm curious how we go from cosmology into metaphysics yeah so my book is called metaphysical experiments and it's really looking at uh, metaphysics from the perspective of being about the assumptions or premises for the kind of calculations that we do. For example, when you like, if you read uh, Einstein's original work on relativity, you can like it's a it's a relatively short book. There are certain principles he lays out. Like, let's say that there is an equivalence between this phenomenon and that phenomenon, and let's say x, y, and z. Then it follows, and then you run calculations, right? And Metaphysics is about that part that you that you take for granted or that you put in as the, as the ground assumption to be able to make something work. Now, metaphysics itself has that uh, is on that limit of knowledge because you are like in the case of the Big Bang, t equals zero. There has to have been a starting point. It's a hypothetical premise to run a model. 
right? And what can happen when you start reinforcing that model and you get data back that seem to suggest that it's that it's matching, you start getting the sort of circular like reinforcement that happens that the what actually started out as a hypothetical prom- premise, which you cannot actually prove. Like it's it's beyond the, the limit of what you can prove. There are leading scientists who will admit to this too, that it's so-called ascientific, the Big Bang Theory. We have no way of knowing if there was an originary event. Like literally it lies beyond the horizon of knowledge, right? Uh, and so it's metaphysical in that sense in that you have to put something first or lay down a ground assumption in order to do the science. And science has always had a very uneasy, or the modern science has had an uneasy relationship with metaphysics because it's often tied to the idea of religion, right? Or the idea that if something is metaphysical, it's then if, if something is beyond what we know, we shouldn't even consider it scientific, right? So cosmology is interesting in that it no matter how advanced the calculations and how big the telescopes, there is always metaphysics implicit in it because you have to make certain ground rules for how you set about doing research. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So then how did, how did we go from studying the expansiveness of the universe into applying that uh, interest into human optimization? Because that's very interesting uh, lateral shift. I'm sure there's always parallels. Like we're always thinking about you know, how can you perform at a better level? How can you make your brain work more effectively? How can we optimize human you know, outcomes? But I'm curious how you made that that shift or that leap from um, studying the expansiveness of the universe and metaphysics now into um, you know ultimately creating a business that is that is really focused on optimization of humans. I get asked that question a lot, and because I I didn't have a linear path with it that I didn't set out to like, you know, lead a health tech startup in this, uh, this particular way. It was not in the forefront of my mind, but at a certain point when I started working with this, I did realize what the, what the real connection was. And it lies in the, not even the idea, but the reality of energy in the universe. And that's really, it comes down to light and starlight or sunlight in our case. The sun in our universe is like the star that we revolve around. Everything in the cosmos, like if you look away from all the calculations and the measurements and all of these, like, and the metaphysical issues, the ground force that animates all things in our world is the sun. And the energy that comes from the sun is something we rarely think about because it's something we take for granted. Our body clocks are tuned to it and we have certain practices around it. And I think in our culture, we very easily fall into thinking about the sun as something like, don't, don't get burnt and it's good because you get vitamin D, right? Whereas actually the whole scope of what the sun does to us and the force that it is, is so much more, especially if you apply a cosmic perspective and you look at the actual energy that's sent to our planet, you know, like every day, there is something like 100 times more energy sent to earth in one minute than an entire year's worth of production on the planet by humans, right? If you try to calculate the energy output, we live shielded in a little bubble inside a giant fireworks of an explosive cosmic force, right? And we don't normally consider this in this particular way, but the sun and the sun's spectrum contains a lot of different wavelengths. Right, so we see visible light, and that's how we we orient in the world. There's a huge part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's made up of infrared, specifically. There's also ultraviolet at the other end of the spectrum. There's different kinds of rays that we don't see, but infrared in particular has a very strong physical co- 
correlation with what we do and our bodies, right? Uh, there's, uh, it's been calculated that more than 50% of the energy that comes from the sun for us is in the infrared range. We just don't see it, but we can feel it. It is the effect when you look at the sun. If you look at a sunset or a sunrise and you feel that glow on your skin, the color you see is red, but really the warming effect that you'd like, that what makes your skin warm when you're in the sun, that is infrared. That is a kind of a light heating. It is a, a longer wavelength than you can see, but it has the ability to penetrate into your body. So infrared is like this massive part of the spectrum that's invisible to us, but it's a huge part of the sun's energy. And the crux of all this and what enabled uh, our innovation and what I'm doing right now is the realization through all the scientific research that near infrared lights, very specific wavelengths of light are clearly shown to stimulate physiological processes in the body. So it stimulates the healing response in the body. Uh, the mechanism that is known now that is like well uh, established is that it affects the mitochondria in your cells and the mitochondria for, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with this already, but it is the energy generators in your cells. So basically when you, when you expose your body, like, uh, and so we're talking about the skin here, like, like through the skin, basically that the light can penetrate, you are stimulating these light receptors and energy generators in your cells to basically work faster. So your body is already tuned to healing and to recovering. That's what normal part of its job. So when you apply infrared lights in like with a very particular output and wavelength, you stimulate this process to go a lot faster and to produce a much stronger recovery results, for example. Uh, and this is something that was actually developed by NASA in the early 2000s. And the research goes back several decades and there's a lot of studies on it, but I came across this not having heard at all about this phenomenon. And I was really puzzled of why we haven't heard about it before when we see like these benefits have been established. Mm -hmm. And I realized wavelength? that, yeah, there's yeah, sorry. Go ahead. There's a specific wavelength. I know I've, I've heard you talk on the podcast before about a specific wavelength because because what we're running into now as consumers is, is there's, you know, innumerable red light devices on the, on the market now. And sometimes the legitimacy of the product comes into question. Like I've heard varying theories around it has to be exactly this spectrum from, you know, this very, very narrow range to it can be a, a wide range of infrared from 600 to 640. You know, I've heard all these different theories, but I'm curious coming from, you know, the astrophysicist, what, what is the actual most effective proven range? Yeah. And so I, I have to emphasize that I am, uh, as much as I wish I could be a sort of a light version of Andrew Huberman, like scientist, I am really a philosopher of science and I try to navigate this, uh, um, like the research in this, uh, but I'm fortunate to have really, really strong team members as well who are like on the medical and the scientific side, like really applied. And so from what we can see of the research that has been done, and there's a lot, there's over 15,000 papers on photobiomodulations, like in peer reviewed, it's, it goes under different names and there are different applications that are tested, but the general phenomenon for the near infrared light, it's in the range between 800 nanometers and 870. There's a whole range. And it seems like to produce benefits, like regardless of whether it's 830 or 850, there's like slight variations in between, but all of it is effective uh, if it has the right power output, which is an important part of it, like a power density to it. So just a regular light bulb, probably going to give some beneficial effects, but nowhere near what we designed our device FlexBeam to do. 
And so with our wavelengths, we are between 800 and 830, and we've put in a pulse so it peaks at around 810 nanometers, which uh, we have seen to be the most beneficial from that, from the research that we know. Uh, but of course, this is still something that's being tried out and studied more in depth. So looking at the data from photobiomodulation, I've heard you explain it numerous times, but what should the audience or what should what should the average person be looking for as far as potential benefit or, or potential reason to use photomodulation? Should it be everyone needs this? Or I mean, is it is it pain? Is it energy production? Is it inflammation? All of the above? Or is there specific you know, ailments that it's maybe best suited for? Yeah, so this is a, a question that has been developed be has bedeviled us from the start because there are so many potential applications and benefits if you look at infrared and red light therapy generally. And we've seen this with like companies that produce panels you can hang on the wall, for example, they will list like 10 or 15 different benefits. It's very hard to navigate in that jungle, I think, for the regular consumer on what actually is the most beneficial and what to, to use it for. We have created a targeted device, right? So FlexBeam is a wearable and a portable device. We've really increased the power density in it. So you do not cover your whole body, but where you place it, you get a dose that's more effective than if you had a panel or a lamp. And because of the design, because it's designed to curve around wherever you put it, so you get effective light from multiple angles at the same time, particularly beneficial if you have an injury or a local problem, like either in a joint or a muscle tissue, like if you have some sort of weak spot uh, is particularly beneficial because then you get a kind of treatment you can't if you just have a light bulb, like it literally goes into your skin. And remember, infrared light penetrates into the body. That's the effect, right? So you want a device that you really can have on your skin because that's when you get up to 10 centimeters, depending on whether there's bone, tissue, bone or tissue in the way. But you can get quite deep. You can't get that effect from just a light bulb 10 centimeters away. You already lost 90% of the energy. Like the energy dissipates very, very quickly. And this is why specifically we designed FlexBeam for this purpose. Have you guys experimented with too much? I, I've, I've heard some stories around like specific limitations that we should be placing on ourselves as far as frequency and duration. Yeah, so this is the other sort of the holy grail of uh, using infrared light therapy in the right way is finding the sweet spot for the dose. So this is something we spent a lot of time researching, trying to find the sort of the right level. Because if you use it too much, it's not dangerous, but what it will do is it will have almost no effects. It's like your body will adapt to it. So we try to convey this to users as well, that the principle is not that more is necessarily better. We said like one dose of FlexBeam is 10 minutes. That's a 10 minute session and it just turns itself off. You can repeat that if you have a very specific problem, you can do 20 minutes. But if you do an hour, it's not going to be three times more effective. It's probably going to be less. And if you have very low output or just a very short treatment, you're also not going to see any results. So it's really like a bell curve with the most effective dose. The optimal dose is somewhere in the middle. And what we calculate 10 to 20 minutes with FlexBeam is usually enough for most kinds of conditions. One of my uh, previous employees lost her hair or, or started losing her hair from too much red light. Like as soon as she stopped, I don't, I don't remember the exact pathway, but we talked to one of our scientific friends and said it may have been cytochrome P450. Like she's pushing this out, she's pushing this too hard. It, you know, pull it back on it and all of a sudden her hair stopped falling out. So she was mm -hmm. doing like, rather than the 10 minutes front and back, which was, which was prescribed to her, she was doing 30 minutes front and back 
And it was just like, she's like, I don't know what's happening. My hair's falling out. Any, you've never seen something like that? No, we haven't had that kind of case. We don't recommend using FlexBeam on the head specifically. Uh, red light, uh, which is uh, in the visible spectrum, uh, which is part of our device as well, is very common with this combination of red and near infrared combination that's supported by the evidence that the combination makes the infrared also more effective. But it's really red light specifically that is for skin and hair. Uh, and there's a lot of beauty applications and hair applications and stuff that are like in other kinds of products using specifically red light. Uh, but here I would just, yeah, I would use caution against sort of overuse. We have seen some people, it's a very human kind of thing. You find something that works. Like we have customers that, you know, a lot of users that reported they were like blown away by like they had a muscle strain, for example, and they used FlexBeam for 10 minutes and they could feel the difference. And then they used it again the next day and the strain was gone. Right. And then they got so excited that they started using it 10 times a day. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a difficult message to get across sometimes because we tend to think this way that 10 times more must be 10 times more effective. Yeah. But I guess it's a little bit like you have a, a dosage of uh, a pharmaceutical or a supplement or even a training regimen doing 10 times more than what you are, what your trainer says you should do is not going to make it 10 times stronger. Right. The whole point of this is that it produces what's called hormesis, that is a stress response at the cellular level that induces the cells to just kick back and and uh, and gain strength. Right. Right. So just so I'm clear on on this, so you said specifically your product is is isolating or specifically in a, in in the near infrared range of 830, and that should not be placed against the head. Is that correct? And maybe you can yeah. explain why. We say not to use it on the head because it's not really designed for the brain. Uh, the brain is a very, very, uh, uh, let's say, uh, that, that should, hang on, sensitive organ. Like it runs, it's a very different principle when you apply something to, to the brain. And it's not been designed for that purpose. It's very high power lamps. We don't know if it's dangerous or not dangerous, but there's also limitations on the studies that you can do with brain. So we designed this for the body. You can shine it toward your face, no problem for like collagen effect in your face, but there are face masks that will do if you're only interested in the beauty applications. There's probably, you know, a simpler, cheaper face device you can use. This is really for any issue you might have in your body. So especially for muscle, right? Any muscular skeletal conditions, it is uh, proven to be very, very powerful when it comes to like muscle repair and therefore also in performance which I imagine might be of interest to to your listeners as well. Yeah, very much so. So many of my clients are, are boxers, professional athletes, or, or fighters. And there's a lot of um, talk around shining light on your head post-fight, post-football, post-hockey. Mm -hmm. um, just so I understand, for personal reasons, it's a di I'm assuming it's a different light spectrum that that should be. Obviously, maybe we don't want the 800 light spectrum. We want a different kind of range. I think the what our research shows is that it's not about the wavelengths when it comes to the brain like that is beneficial but it is about the output and the dose you probably need a lot less for the brain in order to stimulate so there are these sort of helmets that have been designed on the market uh, very very promising research toward like alzheimer issues and dementia issues cognitive issues there's a lot of great things you can do with red and infrared light that seems like very promising for the brain but it requires a lot more research than has been done to date. And it would require a device that specifically sort of feeds the, the light or the energy in at certain spots. 
in the brain and not just canvassing it around. It makes sense. I just want to be cautious because I know a lot of a lot of times people listening will hear something, hear a soundbite, repeat it, and say, "Hey, this should be this is should go everywhere. All red light is good for all things." So I think it's important that we kind of discern here, like, "Hey, no, that's not the reality." And and because most companies don't um, divulge what range their red light is in, you know, mm-hmm. the typical you know highest quality or quote unquote highest quality or, or most popular brands never divulge what range their their red light is in it's very difficult for the consumer to know like hey where should i be shining this like we have men shining on their head and their testicles and 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 you know everything like okay so i think it's important for the listener to realize that there there is potential different implications and, and different power outputs yeah uh, certainly so the brain and also uh testicle area uh, is where like everything that we know suggests you should be very cautious so that it can have beneficial effects but then you should follow very specific protocols i know for testosterone boosting for example we have things to show that it's uh only a few minutes with the lowest setting will probably more than sufficient and that if you do it a lot you can have adverse effects potentially uh, so it's not something that we would market it for. It's like, hey, just blast this on your on your balls for thirty minutes, uh, because uh, there's no evidence to back up that that is really beneficial, right? Yeah. But for the rest of your body, I have to say, like from anything like your neck and down, like shoulders, joints, elbows, knees, legs, lower back issues, all of it is very very safe technology. It's been so well tested that there's no there's no known adverse effects from this at all. The worst case scenario, if you use it too much, is just that you won't get the same results because your body adapts too quickly. Okay, yeah, that's great. That's important information to know. And I think I always just like to to find the the potential drawbacks, right? I always I always want to kind of drill in and be like, hey, let's understand this because most people are going to come on here and paint things as a panacea. But I, I'd like to give both ends of the, of the spectrum because I absolutely see the, the potential benefit from you know all of the things that you mentioned. I just want to make sure that we don't um, neglect to mention the things like, hey, don't do these things. It's important to no, I'm, know where you're are. Yeah, I'm glad you do uh, as well, Ben, because there's it's very easy in this sort of uh, new buzzing technology and this like catching people that has these amazing applications. And truly, they are amazing. This is why like me and the co-founders and like we all decided we, ha- we have to like we have to create something like this because it is unlike anything else on the market. But at the same time, it is not a magic wand. It's very easy to just like, especially if you have an issue, like if you have a torn shoulder issue, like a muscle strain that's been on for a long time, it's not like you can just put this on for 10 minutes and suddenly like everything is amazing again. It will need some time. It will need some treatment time. It would require you to sleep because as many sleeps that you recover and you bounce back stronger and then you use it again and then you have another stimulus. And we can clearly show that the recovery path is, is significantly shortened for a lot of conditions. But it's not the same as saying, oh yeah, you just used this once and now you can like you can run again uh, in like one day. I think there's it's always a temptation to think of a new a new technology as a panacea. Is there a specific time of day that you recommend doing this? Like, is it a morning thing because people are going to see an energy increase? Is it a bedtime thing because it may decrease inflammation? Or can I just kind of be wherever? Yeah, it really depends on what you are going to treat, right? So if you look at uh, general health and well-being type protocols that you just want to promote your overall well-being, you can use it favorably in combination with your body clock, so to speak, to use it as part of 
their circadian rhythm. So like in the morning to get an extra dose of sort of sunshine, like it's uh, like it's got that sort of uh, concentrated sunset kind of effect wherever you place it. And also before bedtime to help induce sleep. These are some very, very um, interesting and promising results that we have seen. But if you're applying it to a muscular issue, which is by far the sort of the most common use of this, besides pain relief, which is often also muscular in some, some capacity, would recommend to use it in combination with training. So we have some interesting uh, studies that we, we have replicated a study in-house in a smaller version of a peer-reviewed study. I'm happy to link in your show notes if your listeners are interested, Absolutely. but about performance specifically, right? And so just to give you an idea of how the study was set up, it is trying to measure physical performance or like the preconditioning and the impact on muscular fatigue after exercise. So they had subject groups that got to use infrared lights in, in our smaller version, we had them using FlexBeam and then a control group that thought they were using FlexBeam, but they had a sham device, so a placebo group. Uh, and we did a random double blind. And so these groups that basically they were asked to perform lat pulldowns, peer-reviewed study, there are pec flies that they use uh, and, and pull-ups, but a very high intensity strenuous physical exercise. And they were just measured how many reps they could do until total fatigue. Right. And so they had one group that used FlexBeam one hour before and then went as much as they could. Another group that did as much as they could and then used FlexBeam an hour after. And in both cases, compared to the placebo or the sham effect group, the, the effect was significant. Right. We had in our study, it was about 40% increase in reps. Like if you used it either before, use FlexBeam one time? before or after. Yeah. From, from one session. And so when you compare this to the peer-reviewed studies that's available online, this was using a more generic device with a lower power output, but they also found significant uh, results, like 10 to 15% improvement in strength, mm. like in straight up performance, be able to actually lift more than they would otherwise. So uh, were, they, were you shining it directly on the lat in this case, or what, what, what part of the body would you, would you shine it on? So in our case for a lat pull down, it was on the upper back. So it just strapped it around uh, the front. So the, all the light diodes were just on the upper shoulder uh, back. We've had similar results with user case studies for runs, like for marathon running and similar is people use it on their legs like an hour before they run or within the hour before running appear to have delayed onset of lactic acid and like able to pull through that to a greater degree than they could without it. This is something we're studying more uh, in depth now with professional athletes, because it's something that we find is it's a very, like it's a very compelling mm -hmm. kind of research for sports, especially, right? You guys building it into like shorts, like building it in underwear, like we're, we're going to go for a run. You got this every hour you put it on for 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it can be a challenge depending on what sport you're into. We have a trial now with the Norwegian downhill skiing team, like they're testing it and they were really keen to test this thing, but they strap on all their gear like hours before. <laughs> so they were just like, I want to try it on my legs before going running and uh, like before setting downhill. And that was, that was harder. But if you are, are doing a run, for example, like it's just in, in shorts, you can just do it before, uh, before or after both seem to work. That's really interesting. For whatever reason. So uh, we are exploring this more now as we're like developing more orientation into like recovery technology, which is when we started out with this as a medical grade device. And a lot of our first 
customers' first users. We're having circulatory issues, pain problems often. Like uh, one of the effects of FlexBeam when you shine it locally is, I mean, you power the mitochondria in your cells to just work faster. And so overall boosting the whole process that your body is going through, but you're also getting local blood flow, like vasodilation effects. Mm -hmm. So that this also helps with pain management. So it's one of the applications of, of FlexBeam that's very popular with uh, with our first users with like as a as a pain relief instrument. But really compared to other forms of pain relief, it's a bit different because this goes for the root cause, so to speak, and not the symptom. It's not like you put it on and it just numbs the effects, but it actually stimulates the area that is hurting. A lot of the focus we've had has been on the pain relieving effects, but where we're seeing the most potential, and I think that your listeners might be most interested in, is the the sort of the performance gains you can get from yeah. this. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's a quite a bit of data around infrared light. I don't know if it's near infrared specific, near infrared specifically, but, but infrared light, increasing nitric oxide production, as you say, vasodilation, which is also desirable when it comes to training and recovery as well. It also has potential like beneficial effects for sleep for a lot of, uh, a lot of people are reporting this. This is a module that we're working more on mapping out. But obviously the link between if you can get deeper sleep from using it in the evening, that's also going to help your recovery. So somehow, even though that seems like it's a, it's a different thing, it also feeds into the same recovery natural cycle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of my, uh, so I, I specifically work with men over 35 and a lot of guys are, are uh, you know, whether currently aware or going to be aware in the near future of, of circulatory issues, cardiovascular disease, heart disease. Have you, are you guys studying anything around the cardiovascular system other than this vasodilation effect and its, and its potential benefits to heart function? Yeah, well, one of the biomarkers uh, and effects that have been assessed in the literature and that we're also mapping out has to do with uh, VO2 kinetics, mm -hmm. for example. So there's tests like with our like peak, peak power performance, peak force, like output, and then also VO2 that is measurable. But beyond that, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. I mean, it sounds like this has so many implications that, you know, I think the future is most people who are in any way interested in pain relief or performance are going to, are going to have some type of red light practices in their day. And, and I'm so glad that it's come along because it seems like it's solving a lot of these challenges and hopefully it's in a healthy way, right? Rather than constantly, you know, I, I know so many people that are taking NSAIDs and, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and, uh, you know, just things that you know are not good because they're constantly in pain. And so if we can find things that are ultimately, uh, you know, tapping into th to the sun's natural healing frequencies, there's huge benefit there. So coming back to the, we talked a little bit about the sun having its natural healing benefits. We also have people in the back of their mind who are saying, you know, the sun has negative associations with most, most people's brain. They think it's unhealthy or you have to limit your exposure. Can you talk to us a, a little bit about that? Like, what is it about the sun that is potentially dangerous? Because I want to kind of separate those two things in people's mind. Yeah, well, it's uh, if you take the cosmic perspective, again, it is this fireball of energy that animates all life, right? But it's constant. And we are shielded from it 12 hours a day, roughly, or 8 to 12 hours a day, depending on where on the planet you are, because we have nighttime. So it's almost like we are, if you look at this in a very big picture, we're being blasted every waking day through all the filters that we have with the atmosphere and inside of our homes or glass or anything, but we're like blasted for half the day and then we get reprieve the other half of the day and then it's on again. Uh, I think the dangerous or the detrimental side of the sun is a lot of us sort of overexposure to that energy. 
it is really not uh, being able to balance out basically how much that you can get. I don't think of the sun as in itself harmful or uh, anything, but how you expose to yourself to it. This is probably, you know, the best piece of advice for a living generally that's cheap, like a cheap way to enhance your health is to be mindful of your light exposure. There's a lot to suggest. And I know, I mean, you've had Andrew Huberman on here some put before, who's a, a, who's also lately become a proponent of this, you know, uh, getting light on your skin early in the day actually is clearly shown to improve your circadian rhythm, that you are exposed to the sun early. We live in a society now in which it's very common that you are sitting inside all day and you actually don't get that kind of light exposure, for example. Yeah. Uh, but as with many things, uh, there can be too much of a good thing. So one, one thing I heard, I'm curious if you've, if you've seen this in your kind of exploration of the data, is that morning light exposure can actually prepare your system for afternoon UV exposure. So, you know, getting the IV, the infrared in the morning, which is predominantly what we what we experience in, in the atmosphere in the morning, will prevent the negative effects or the burning, the likelihood of burning in the afternoon. Have you, have you seen any of that? I'm curious if your device would also potentially provide some of those benefits. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the recommendations to why um, if you want to improve your circadian rhythm or like you have issues around your sleep cycle that using it in the morning can be very beneficial because it's a it's a way for you to get quotation marks a small dose of sunshine that you wouldn't otherwise get especially maybe in winter times or if it's um uh if you are in some way uh prevented from going outside and and sort of basking in sunlight being exposed to a targeted red infrared light gets you that part of the spectrum and it is a stimulant for the cells right very cool. Um, Bjorn, great, mm -hmm. great conversation. It's been incredible to have you on. Uh, I have a few more questions about like, yeah. what are you studying right now? Just like out of, out of curiosity, someone who's, who's got their mind in these very specific um, genres or niches, what, what are you studying most right now? Well, I have a project with the, on the cosmology side, trying to understand better some of these alternatives alternative cosmologies or possible ways in which uh, the universe can be explained differently. That's a bit of a hobby project, but to, mm. to, to be honest, uh, Recharge Health and this uh, Flexbeam uh, train that we are on consumes most of my time. And so uh, with that project now, uh, I'm actually really studying more in-depth business and economics and uh, the investor side of things because we're in the middle of a fundraise right now yep. and uh, the strategic sides of it. So I've sort of pivoted from, say, immersing myself in philosophical issues to now uh, learning how to develop a business in the 2020s with the, in the current digital landscape. Yep. So that's probably the biggest sort of learning experience I've had in the last year or two. And that's yeah, also quite interesting in, in very different ways. You know, I get it because as any any expert knows in any field, at some point, if you want to continue to, to grow and build and make money, you're probably going to learn how to become a marketer and a business owner and a leader and uh, a financier and all these different facets of business that sometimes we neglect to realize in our pursuit of becoming an expert in the one topic that we truly love. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So it's consent consistently or continuously learning to adapt to new circumstances and new new realities as we're navigating this. But I feel very fortunate to be uh, to be a part of it, and we feel like we're only at the start of the journey. Mm -hmm. We sold twelve thousand flex beams for now, and now we have uh, some like major sports profiles that are going to do some like work for us this year. 
We recently signed on um, for any of your listeners who are interested in tennis. Casper uh, Ruud is Norway's biggest tennis star. He's one of the top three, top five in the world. Yep. He used this device now uh, since last fall, and he was so excited about it that he wanted to like join us and invest and also be a brand ambassador. Awesome. So we're hoping to uh, like we're building a path to taking this more uh, to a bigger audience than what we've been able to do so far. Like we've gone through crowdfunding and we've gone through like the initial stages to to find an audience. And now I think that this is really the, the feedback and the traction is really taking us to this place where we can reach out more broadly. And I think to a community like your listeners as well that are really in tune with health improvement and the latest tips and, and, and tricks on this, I think it's a really, a really good fit. And I think it's the kind of product that you'll see more of in the future. Completely agree with you. And uh, the thing I like most about your unit, uh, now that I'm speaking with you, we know it's high power, we know it's specific range, which is all beneficial. The thing I personally like most is ease of use. If I have to stand naked in front of a thing on my wall all the time, the likelihood of using it goes down. Like I'm busy, I, I don't have 20 minutes to sit there all the time. Even trying to read a book is not all that easy when you're staring at red light. Yours, it's a relatively compact unit. You can put it on, it shapes your body. You can you can sit and read a book. You can, you can do all these other things. And it's not just like, I have to stand here and do nothing for 20 minutes. So I think that the likelihood of someone using it more frequently, therefore benefiting from it goes way up with yours. So congratulations, kudos on that. You've done a great job. And I look forward to seeing what the company comes up with in the future. Thank you. That's excellent. And we had that as a mantra when we started internally to research and, and like prototype this was what's the best red light device? It's the one that you are most likely to use. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the compliance we found with other forms of like modalities of this. It's not practical. So people mm-hmm. like buy it on a whim and they get excited and then they lose interest after two days or a week. Whereas here you have a device you can bring with you anytime. And then you lose the word of mouth benefit. I think with stuff like this, I mean, I'm I'm certainly in general, I'm a skeptic of everything. It's just my, kind of my nature. So I'm always looking for feedback, reviews, and maybe word of mouth confirmation. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people are like, hey, try this device. I'm like, nope, not, not trying anything until I know it's effective. So uh, in this case, obviously speaking to you, I, I, I'm more than willing to try the device, but in general, I'm a skeptic. And I think because if people are using it, they're going to see a benefit, the likelihood of it spreading quickly is is very likely. So I mean, congratulations. Um, I'm happy to, that you guys have come up with the device. Uh, I'm a fan. I'm going to use it. And I appreciate you making the time to be here. Okay. Thanks a lot for having me on, uh, Ben. It was great. All right, that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for being here. I want to just acknowledge one of the questions that have come in through the Muscle Intelligence community. If you're not already part of the Muscle Intelligence Facebook community, go ahead and join that now. Muscleintelligence.com slash community is where you can find it. Uh, Here's the question coming in from Cameron. How important is it to have heavy strength-focused sessions when your main priority is hypertrophy? How often should you incorporate heavy days over high volume sessions. And this is from Cameron in the MI community. Cameron, thanks for the question, man. Um, So if we want to get into the science of this, it seems as though that the rep range is less important. What's, What's important is the number of repetitions that are approaching fatigue. Meaning if I'm doing a set of five, Many of those reps, a larger percentage of those reps are near my physical capacity, near my physical max, inducing some type of muscular fatigue, muscular uh, tension response. Whereas if I did a set of 20, maybe only the last three or four of those are 
getting near that muscular limit, creating an, uh, the the force necessary within the muscle, the force production necessary within the muscle to induce a response. So science would suggest that strength training, hypertrophy training, and even high rep endurance type training all have the same capacity to induce hypertrophy. That being said, I think it depends who you are, what level of expertise you have in exercise, how many years you've been training, and how physically capable you are. It's specific to exercise versus exercise per exercise, right? So if I'm really capable at a squat, but I'm not really capable at a row, well, that may be actually that may actually require a completely different rep range to be effective. As an example, for the longest time, I was really, really bad at pull downs. Like I just it just didn't work for me. My body just didn't fit. My rib cage is big. My, my scap didn't move really well. I didn't know how to make it move. So I could go as heavy as I want and my lats were simply not doing any work. So in that case, a heavy exercise for me would have been an, an, not an exceptional idea. Whereas something that may be slightly lighter, where I can really focus on control, I can really focus on contraction, would induce a greater local hypertrophy, specific hypertrophy. So while everyone looks for a... a black and white bipolar answer or, or yeah binary answer it's never binary it's saying okay well how capable are you of this in this exercise and if you're highly capable my suggestion is then heavy is a very good idea i also like heavy for the systemic benefits because you're literally challenging a lot more than just that specific muscle i think there's a lot of benefit to that I love the idea of simply training my entire nervous system to fire up a greater number of muscles, motor, motor, motor units per contraction. Um, so Cameron, my advice, my suggestion is um, two days per week on average should be spent with heavy training for most people because it takes a long time to recover from those things. Typically from a neurological level, it takes a little bit longer. And so for most people, about two days per week is enough for for strength for heavier training, and you can adjust anywhere between two and four days that are hypertrophy focused. And so, yes, you can absolutely go more than two for heavy days. My suggestion is you don't go less than two for heavy days. Um, could you do a little bit of strength work on every day? Yes, I don't see any problem inherently with that. Um, it just should be in different parts of the body in general. Uh, again. There's so much nuance to exercise selection and uh, how to how to program effectively for each individual person. If I'm going to give you a specific answer to these questions, is very very difficult. One more question in coming in from Biata: Does overeating protein for your body weight have any negative effects on the body? Is there any cause for concern in it raising glucose levels? Thanks, Biata. Um, I don't think there's any negative effect for raising blood glucose levels in general. If you're eating insulinogenic proteins like whey protein, then maybe. Um, but in general, I don't think that's a concern. I think the only quote-unquote concern I've ever seen from overeating protein is some constipation if you're eating a lot of protein without fiber. Um, sometimes it tends to back people up. In general, uh, all the research says there's no, no negative effects up to two grams of protein per pound of body weight, which is a lot. It's not a lot of people eating two grams per pound of body weight. I have. I did for a very long time as a bodybuilder. To be honest, I saw a lot of growth. I also did see a lot of bloating and distension because like 
you need the acids and enzymes and, and microbiome to break that down. And most people don't. I, know I certainly didn't. So be selective, be cautious with how you progress your protein intake up based on what your body is capable of digesting, absorbing, assimilating. And as far as negative effects, it doesn't seem to be any. Now, if you have kidney problems, that's a different concern. If you have the absence of stomach acid, that's a different concern, uh, both of which I would definitely be concerned with uh, consuming too much protein. Third and final question today, do you still take BCAs if you're eating enough protein? Richie from Michigan. Um, Richie, I don't take BCAs. I do take leucine or essential amino acids often. I like the product um, Perfect Aminos, no, no affiliation, Perfect Aminos by, I think the company's Body Health. Um, really good product. And I'll take three to 10 grams of that if I notice my recovery is not adequate with just eating enough protein. So the reason I do that, and people say, well, why does that make any sense? Well, this is my logic, and this is not scientifically valid in any way, but here's my logic. I'm consuming 60 grams of protein from steak. It can take five to eight hours to break down a steak in its entirety. So I'm getting this really slow drip of leucine, right? The slow drip of amino acids into my bloodstream from that the di digestion of that steak. So if I'm looking to induce um, protein synthesis sooner when I eat, well, then I want to consume some leucine to get that protein switch from the food. So I'll often, if my goal is building muscle or recovering more, I will increase my leucine intake during meals. So I'm getting that additional stimulus to my muscle protein synthesis signal. Uh, ladies and gents, thanks for being here. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Bjorn Eckerberg. If you're not already part of the Muscle Intelligence community, we are growing every day. Our objective is helping men to ultimately live your greatest life in a body you love, to ultimately look, feel, and perform at your best at any age. And gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I never want my standard of physical capability to fall. I never want my standard of how I look, how I feel, and how I perform to fall. My objective is I want to maintain my 25-year-old self for life. So what markers are you using to make sure that you're not getting worse? What measures are you using to make sure that you're returning to that 25-year-old self? Start thinking about what are those targets? Certainly body fat is a target. Certainly strength is a target. Certainly waist measurement is a target. Certainly mental capacity is a target. Certainly sex drive and sex capability is a target. Certainly blood pressure should be a target. Certainly heart rate should be a target. Certainly aerobic fitness should be a target. What else? I'm curious what you're using as your standard of measure so that you make sure that for the rest of your life, you are not falling below your standard of physical capability, metabolic capability, mental capability. Jens, thanks for being here. Ladies, appreciate you as always. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest 
interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.